Well, good morning. I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 12. We will begin by reading these first four verses, and then I'm going to ask you to turn to the passage that was read to us earlier in the service, and that is from Romans chapter 4. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find Genesis 12 on pages 8 and 9 of that copy of the Scripture. I'll read these first four verses, actually the first part of verse 4. Genesis chapter 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 4, So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And then if you'll flip back to the book of Romans, and if you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 941, I'll read just two verses, verses 11 and 12. Picking up near the middle of verse 11, Romans chapter 4, verse 11, it says, the purpose was to make him, that is Abraham, the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So two passages on the life of Abraham. And this is where we end our series through the first part of Genesis, with the life of Abraham. Uh, We've been working our way through Genesis 1 through 11, and uh, Lord willing, this will be the last message in this series. And it might seem to you that This is an odd place to stop, but actually it's perfectly fitting because the storyline of Genesis up to this point has been working toward the answer to the question, how will the curse that has settled upon all of us like uh, an infectious plague, how will the curse be reversed? Uh, To this point, human beings have been expelled from the Garden of Eden. Uh, We're guilty because we've decentered ourselves from the presence and person of God, And all of life has been just mangled out of place. And the question is, what's going to fix things? What's going to make things right? And the answer to that question comes here in Genesis chapter 12, where God comes to a man named Abram, whose name letter gets changed to Abraham, and says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you a blessing to everyone else. I'm going to restore a land to you. I'm going to give you descendants. And so the entire Bible hinges on this character, Abraham. And you might ask the question, what's so special about Abraham? Well, the answer is nothing, really. Like the people around him in his culture, he was an idol worshiper. Uh, He was just a a normal guy. Except that he was so unlikely to receive a promise like this because the promise involved descendants and Abram and his wife Sarai had no children. In fact, they weren't able to have children. She was barren and he was old. And yet the promise comes to this man, Abram, through whom the curse will be reversed. Now, if you're, also, if you're doubting the importance of Abraham, let me just put it, th- put it to you this way. Almost half of the people in this world claimed to have, at least nominally, claimed their descent, uh, their religious descent back to Abraham. Muslims, Christians, and Jews are all considered to be Abrahamic, adherents of an Abrahamic 
religion. About 3.8 billion people in the world trace their religious uh, heritage back to this moment. I mean, if you're going to understand something about human history and, and the, the world today, you really ought to understand about something about Abraham, or Abram as he was initially called. So we can't ignore him. He's, he's extremely important. But the question that I want us to consider this morning is, okay, what's his significance for us right now, right? Today, in the, in the 21st century, 2023, what's the significance of Abram today? And that's the that's the question that Paul's answering here. See, Abram is not just significant for what he was thousands of years ago, but right now. Why? Because we, you and I, are to follow in the footsteps of faith of our father Abraham. Look at verse 12. And to make him the father of the circumcised, that is the recipients of the worldwide blessing, not uh, to those not merely who are circumcised, but also to those who walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had. So, Abraham is, is supposed to be an example to us. Now, this may also be a little confusing to you. You're like, okay, in what sense is Abram supposed to be an example to me? If you know something about the life of Abraham, you know that he didn't do so well in some areas, right? Uh, he was paranoid that people were going to kill him because his wife was so beautiful. He lied about his wife, and he let her be taken to a king's harem twice, uh, he, he took concubines, he was a polygamist, and you, so you're probably you're thinking, okay, in what sense is Abram supposed to be an example of following the, of, of the footsteps of faith for me? And the, the answer is that we are to follow the way that Abraham trusted the Lord. Abraham, despite all his flaws, Abraham had life-transforming faith, and that's what I want to speak to you on this morning, is life-transforming faith. And the passage here in Romans 4 gives us three uh, tells us three things about life-transforming faith, this kind of faith that you and I ought to have, three things about this life-transforming faith. We're going to see its object, that is what the faith is in. We're going to see the result, that is what happens when you have life-transforming faith, and we're going to look at the practice, and that is what, how do you practice life-transforming faith? And we, we see all these things here in Romans chapter 4, and we're going to be uh, referring back to Rome, uh, Genesis 12 and 15 as well. So life-transforming faith, the kind of faith that you and I ought to have First of all, let's look at the object of life-transforming faith. What is it that Abram believed in? Well, if you look at chapter, you're in Romans chapter 4, look at verses 20 and 21. Paul writes this, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Think with me, what was the object of Abram, Abraham's faith? What did he believe in? Simply this, he believed in the promises of God. He believed that what God had said, he was going to do. He simply took God as it were at his word and believed it to be the case. Now, the object of Abraham's faith was not merely optimistic thinking. It wasn't that Abraham believed, oh, there's going to be, there's a cloud right now, but there's going to be a silver lining behind every cloud, or I, I have this, uh, this vague sense that everything is going to turn out all right. No, a Abraham believed that what God had told him would happen, that it really was going to happen. And you think about what it was that God had said. God had said that Abraham was going to have kids, and that through his, his family, the entire world was going to be blessed. In fact, later on in Genesis chapter 15 specifically, one night God tells Abraham to come out and look at the stars, and he looks up at this, this uh, vast array 
of like diamond pinpoints there in the black sky, and he looks at this, and God says, can you count those? Abraham says, absolutely not, and God says, so shall your descendants be. At this point, Abraham didn't even have one child, and his wife was barren. So the promise of God comes to Abraham as this kind of promise. God presents himself to Abraham as a God who could make dead things live. The promise comes this way. Abraham, dead things, what is dead, can come to life. You look at, in, look at it in the text here. He says in, it says in verse 19, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. I mean, it had been one thing if the promise of God came to Abraham, and Abraham already had a bunch of kids, big family, wealthy, wealthy man. And, and God says, oh, by the way, someone in your family uh, eventually is going to be the, the, the means through which the world is going to be blessed, and every single other family in the world is going to be blessed. I mean, if the promise of God had come like that to Abraham when he had a lot of kids, and when they were having kids, and when his family, if his family was multiplying, then a promise like that would have just been like, caramel syrup on vanilla ice cream or something. It'd just be like, here's the cherry on the top. Because he, he would have already had it all. But in this case, Ab- Abraham had nothing. There was nothing that he could look to and says, of course this is going to happen. Abraham had to believe that dead things, lifeless things, could come to life. Now, this is the same kind of faith that you and I are called to exercise. You see, if you could imagine for a moment with me, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, desire to have children. They're in their 20s. She's in her 20s. He's older in his 30s. She doesn't have kids. Most women that age are bearing children. Okay, well, maybe we just give it some time. They're in their 30s. She's in her 30s now. Still no kids. She's in her 40s. Still no kids. I mean, with every decade, it's like the hope begins to die. 50s, 60s, still no children. They're crossing the boundaries of hope. I read about a woman in India who had a child at the age of 73 or 74. Um, they, they didn't know exactly whether she was 73 or 74. Uh, it was uh, by in vitro fertilization, and she um, delivered the baby via C-section. I would say that that's kind of an anomaly, right? I mean, that's, that's really, really unusual. When Sarah gave birth to uh, Isaac, she was 90 years old. But before that point, Abraham and Sarah had crossed every boundary of hope, so they were left with no hope in themselves. Why does God come to a person who has passed every boundary of hope so that he has no hope within himself? Why does God come to a person and says, I'm going to fulfill this promise for you to teach us that the kind of blessing that we need in our life is not a blessing that we can find within ourselves? The kind of blessing that we need in our lives is something that only God can give. And in order to believe that it's going to happen, we have to believe that in the God who makes dead things come alive. Life-transforming faith is not a faith and a promise that we can say, sure, I, I could actually make this happen on my own. It's, it's faith and a promise that would not be fulfilled unless God were to fulfill it. Abraham was beyond, beyond hope. Now, what does this mean for us, though? Here's what this means, is for us to have life-transforming faith, we have to come to a point in our lives where we're utterly beyond hope in ourselves. The reason why, at least one of the reasons why so many people don't have life-transforming faith is that they have still hope in themselves. The reason why they don't have life-transforming faith is because they, they don't believe their lives need to be transformed. 
they still think that they still think that they have some vestige of goodness or if they dig a little deeper down they're going to find it within themselves or they keep on clawing up to find God's approval they haven't lost all hope in themselves like Abraham completely lost all hope in himself life transforming faith has to seize this there's nothing in me that can fulfill this promise if it's going to be fulfilled only God is going to be the one who fulfills it you see what I'm talking about here there's a word for what I'm talking about that is losing all hope in oneself it's the word sin. Our sin separates us from God and renders us completely hopeless apart from God's promises. See, this is a word that a lot of people don't like to talk about today. It's actually, since the 18th century, since about the 18th century, people have increasingly dismissed the idea of sin. First of all, you can make fun of it. Uh, and then you begin to argue against it, and then you begin to attribute the fact that we think in terms of sin as some uh, vestige of the evolutionary process that maybe at one point served a good evolutionary purpose, but someday, eventually, hopefully, it'll just wear off. And this is this idea of sin that's eventually going to be worn away. But since then, and in fact, more recently into the 20th and now into the 21st century, people have been saying, ah, I think that we need to recover this idea of sin. For example, this, uh, this gentleman named Crispin Sartwell, he's a professor of philosophy, he wrote an article about this. Um, the, the name of the article is, What's So Good About Original Sin? And, and he says, we are mystified, or we purport to be mystified by mass shooters, for example. What could possibly motivate a person to want to kill everyone? What could turn them so against their own species? I suggest that to answer a question like that, we must look within ourselves at our own violent fantasies, the ways we hate or negate the world, our moments of imagined annihilation of people we fancy to be our enemies, our feeling at times that we are being arbitrarily persecuted or misunderstood. Perhaps, and this is a man who doesn't believe in God or Jesus Christ or Christianity at all, he says, perhaps if we were witheringly honest, we might see a school shooter within us or a bully or abuser of the sort to help create people like that. This insight is not the exclusive province of Christian theology. And then he quotes Ralph Waldo Emerson. He once wrote, I have within me the capacity for every crime. You see, even secular people are recognizing we can't just dismiss the idea of sin without seriously sabotaging our ability to understand even ourselves. Why? Because the moment you take a, a, a fraction of a second or maybe a little longer to listen to your conscience, you realize that your conscience cannot be satisfied by layering upon yourself good works. At some point, you have to realize I've crossed every boundary of hope and I can't find any hope within myself. If hope is going to come, it's going to come outside myself. But the problem is we have such a shallow view of sin that we think that somehow we can overcome it. And here's how that tends to work. You may be thinking, well, we're conservative Bible believers. We don't, we don't dismiss the idea of sin. We embrace the idea of sin. There is a sin. But here's, here's the tendency for people that are a con- conservative Bible-believing church, people like, like you and I would be is that we can have a very shallow view of sin that makes it very, that a narrow view of sin that makes it merely about breaking certain rules or breaking certain taboos or codes of conduct. And if you manage to, manage to operate within these parameters, then you've checked all your boxes and you're okay. And if we do that, we'll, lose, we'll, we'll forget about these vast areas in our lives that need to be repented of, like pride or judgmentalism or a critical spirit 
Where does that come from? It comes from such a shallow understanding of sin. It comes from this, this idea that there's got to be still some good in myself. There's something that I can do. But like Abraham, life-transforming faith requires that we lose all hope in ourselves so that we trust nothing but the promises of God who can make dead things live. You don't know, you won't realize that you need life-transforming faith until you realize that your life must be completely transformed, not just tweaked, not just improved, not just a layer of paint, but as Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's what we need. We all need to recover a, a more serious understanding of what our sin has done to us. In the late 19th century, uh, J.C. Ryle wrote this, uh, this is from his book on, on holiness. He says this, The plain truth is that a right knowledge of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. Without it, such doctrines as justification, conversion, sanctification are merely words and names which convey no meaning to the mind. The first thing that God does when he makes a new creature in Christ is to send into his heart and show him that he is a guilty sinner. See, this is the very thing that makes faith so life-transforming, is that it makes you realize, in view of our utter hopelessness, I have nothing to rest upon but God's promise and who God is. He is the God that can make dead things alive again. This is the object of life-transforming faith. It is the God who makes the dead live, which is why Paul ends chapter 4 verse of, 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 of Romans Look at verses, verse 24. It says, It will be counted to us who believed in him who did what? Who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. You see, life-transforming faith, first of all, seeds the need for it because we're totally without hope. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. But our trespasses and sins are not the focus of life-transforming faith. The focus of life-transforming faith is the God who brings the dead to life because he brought Jesus Christ from the dead who was crucified, who died for our transgressions and was raised again to declare us righteous. That, that is the very promise of God fulfilled and that is the object of life-transforming faith. The only kind of faith that can truly transform is a faith that depends fully upon the promise of God that those who are dead in their trespasses and sins can come alive because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the object of life-transforming faith. And I ask you a question on this point before we move on to our second one. Have you come to the point in your life where you have lost all hope in yourself? You say, that's such a depressing thing to say. That's such a, that's such a negative thing to say. My friends, you won't have any true hope until you abandon hope in yourself. I don't have... The, the, the gospel is not is not good news because it drives you back to your own works or to your own effort or to your own moralism. That, that's, the gospel is not good news because it does that. The gospel is good news because it tells you that, yes, although you are dead in trespasses and sins, there is someone who took those trespasses and sins on your behalf, and if you trust in him, you can be made alive. That's why the gospel is such good news. But have you come to a point where you've abandoned all hope in yourself, just like Abraham in his life-transforming faith had to abandon all hope in himself? How do you deal with your sin? Do you view it as do you view it shallowly? Do you, do, do you view it as merely, you know, if I can keep this, this narrow group of taboos, this narrow list of do's and don'ts, that I think I'm okay. My friends, your conscience will never handle that. 
And if you treat, if you treat sin and righteousness that way, it'll turn you into a self-righteous, superior person or either someone, if you break those taboos, someone who's falling into utter self-loathing and despair. Fix your eyes upon Jesus and Jesus alone. That's life-transforming faith. Second, what happens when we have life-transforming faith? What's the result of this kind of faith? Well, it is so simple. It's so profound that many people walk right over it and skip right over it. And we see it uh, throughout chapter 4, and we see it also in Genesis chapter 15. Uh, I won't make you turn back there, but it simply says, Abraham believed, and it was counted to him for righteousness. When, when the promise came to Abraham, <laughs> he, he simply took God at, at his word. He believed it. If you look at verse 24 of, chapter, of Romans 4, it says, it will be counted to us, that is, righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. In verse 3 of chapter 4, it says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Here's what happens when you believe in the God who makes dead things alive, specifically in raising Jesus from the dead and Jesus having died for your sins and raised for your justification. Here's what happens when you believe that. You are justified. Now, what does that even mean? to be justified? What does it even mean to be considered righteous? So let me try to explain it this way. Everybody has a sense that their life should count for something, don't you? Don't you, don't you think that you're here for some kind of purpose? I was reading a story to my kids last night, Rip Van Winkle. You've heard of Rip Van Winkle? You know, the guy that went to sleep for 20 years and he woke up and everything had changed? Well, before Rip Van Winkle uh, went to sleep. He was just a lazy bum, right? He, he's this guy that he's, he's married, he has kids, he has a farm, but he, uh, nothing he does, he doesn't, he doesn't work at anything. Um, his, his farm has fallen apart, his kids are dressed in rags, his wife is just disgusted with his laziness, and Rip Van Winkle is just the sort of guy that is like, he's not validating his reason for existence, why are you even on this? Why are you even in this world? Why are you even breathing God's good air? Why are you even walking? The, why? It, it, it seems we all have in our in we all have the sense that every single one of us constitutes a kind of promise that we're going to do something. We're going to matter. We're going to validate the reason why we're, we're, uh, we exist. Actually, that sense that we all feel is, is absolutely true. Each one of us did come into this world for a reason. There is something for us to fulfill. There is a purpose for our life. But so many people go through life trying to figure out what that is and making random guesses at what that purpose might be to validate their own existence. And people could do it in a thousand different ways. It depends on the kind of person you are, the kind of family you've been born into. You may try to validate your existence through, through your work, through your, your career, through being a, a good mom or a good dad or, or impressing people with your athletic skills. I mean, what, what, this is our default tendency to try to, through our career or through our relationships or, or through our athletic endeavors or the amount of money we earn or the reputation we have to validate our existence, to fulfill that vague sense that you and I represent a promise we must fulfill. 
I've shared this with you before, but there is this scene from Chariots of Fire where the character Harold Abrahams, uh, he's, he's, uh, he's a runner and he's training for, trains for these Olympic races and to him it means everything to win these races. And, and he's, he's reflecting, he's going to have a race in, uh, in a, a couple hours, in an hour, and he's in the locker room and he's just kind of reflecting on what's going to happen in an hour's time. He says, and now in one hour's time I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. You see, each one of us, are, we have this, this impulse to justify our existence, and we look often horizontally for doing it. Maybe we could justify our existence through our family relationships, through our work uh, obligations, through our political aspirations. And, and, and very few people look their eyes, look, raise their eyes to see, well, what is my obligation with respect to God? Because God, has the one that, God is the one that has put me on this earth. God is the one that has given me life. And our obligation with respect to God is to glorify Him with all our being. That's our obligation. And that's what it means to be righteous. It means to fulfill the reason for which God has created us, which is to love them with all of our heart and love others as ourselves. But here's the sad reality. Every single one of us fails to do that. Every one of us fails to live up to that promise. Every one of us fails to be righteous, which is why we need righteousness that is not our own. And when you trust in what Jesus Christ did for you, when you exercise that life-transforming faith in the promise of God who makes dead things come to life again, God says, I consider your promise fulfilled. I consider your, you to be righteous. I consider your existence in my sight to be fully validated. And you look up at God, you say, but God, I, I haven't lived a righteous life. I, I've, I've failed in so many ways. And God says, yes, you have but someone else has fulfilled your promise on your behalf. And that is Jesus Christ. And in Him, you are righteous. That's what it means to be righteous. That's what it means when you exercise your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ. God declares you to be righteous. That is the result of life-transforming faith. So, What's the object of life-transforming faith? It is the God who makes dead things alive. What's the result of it? The result of it is that when you exercise that faith, God says, you're righteous. Now, what's the practice of that life-transforming faith? What does it look like practically? Well, being counted righteous was not the end of Abraham's story. It was certainly not the end of his struggles. The reason why I read to you earlier uh, near the beginning of this message, uh, Genesis 12, 1 through 4, remember I stopped right halfway through verse 4, and, and I, 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 I wanted to read to you that part that says, so Abraham went as the Lord told him. I, I wanted to stress to you the fact that having trusted the promise of God, Abraham began to walk. He began to move forward. He began to take footsteps of faith. Now, the fact that those who trust in Jesus Christ are declared righteous, God looks at you and says, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, God looks at you and says, in my sight, in my view, you have fulfilled your promises to me. Now, 
There's that on, one, on the one hand. On the other hand, there's a reality of the way you and I actually live. Do we actually live that way? Do we actually live righteous lives? No, we don't. That creates a tension. And what you do with that tension matters so much. It determines whether you will live a life of anxiety or fearfulness or insecurity or whether you live a life of, like, who cares how I live? How you deal with the tension between the fact that if you're a believer, you are justified. You are completely justified in the sight of God, and yet you still have to work out that justification practically. Now, if we confuse this or if we get this wrong, it leads to a lot of deadness in our lives. Let me try to illustrate it this way. I have four kids. All right, I'm not going to pick on them in particular. I'm just going to think about the fact that I have kids, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, I'm going to actually focus on two, my two sons. I'm not going to tell you anything they've done, but you know, I have, you know I have two sons, two daughters, two sons. So suppose that one of those boys gets to the end of the day. He's been really good all day. He's been giving me gifts, uh, drawing pictures for me, uh, and uh, just on his best behavior, and I tuck him in a bed, into bed at night, and he says, Dad, do I get to still be your boy? I've been really good today. I'd say, of course you're my boy, but it's not because you've been good. It's because you were born into my family. It doesn't matter what you do, you'll still be my boy. And he takes a big breath of relief closes his eyes and goes to sleep. And the other boy hears that. He hears me say, it doesn't matter what you do, you'll still be my boy. He wakes up the next morning, kicks the dog, breaks a window, goes to school, uses profane language, comes back, is disrespectful, disobedient, and says, I'm still your boy, aren't I? And the other boy looks at him with this arrogant expression and says, you better shape up or you won't be, a, you won't be in this family anymore. <laughs> you, you see what's happened. Both of those boys are my boys. And that's not going to change. But on the one hand, one boy can act as if his being my son depends on how well he has behaved. And the other one acts as if being my son, being my son it, therefore doesn't matter how he behaves. What both kids need to hear is this you're in the family now that isn't going to change now act like it you're in the family you don't need to be worried that you're going to be kicked out of the family that you're going to be that you're somehow going to be not my child anymore you're in so enjoy that rest in that and live like it that's what you and i need to understand as believers you're accepted. You're righteous. In fact, there's nothing more you can do to add to your righteousness because God has already said, you are mine. You are accepted. You are in my family. So let's be done with this anxiety, nail-biting sort of Christianity. Rest in the promises of God who brings what is dead and makes it alive. And yet, having been made alive, Live as if you're alive. Live as if you're in God's family. The whole Bible is, the, the New Testament is constantly building our 
exhortations to right behavior upon the basis of our full and final acceptance in Jesus Christ, not the way, other way around. Verses like this, Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, Christ bore our sins in his own body that we might do whatever we want. No, that we might be dead to sin and live to righteousness. Titus chapter 2 says that Christ gave himself for us. Why? So that we could do whatever we want to do, live however we want to live. No, to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works. Why zealous for good works? In order that Christ might be our Savior, in order that we might belong in the family of God. No, because we are in the family of God. To put this into theological terms, it might be helpful for you to, to, to put, assign these ideas to terminology, is we build our sanctification on our justification. We are justified, declared righteous, and upon the basis of that we pursue holy lives. And I think we could see this very easily, very clearly from the life of Abraham. In chapter 4, of Romans, at, at verse 12, it talks about the footsteps of faith. I was looking at the, the meaning of the word footsteps, and it's, it's, it's simply the imprint left in the ground after someone's walked there. Now, imagine me with, with me for a moment. You, you see the, the footsteps of Abraham. They're in the sand, and you see the moment in which where Abraham has been standing, and God said, you are righteous. The footsteps don't stop there. They go on from there. He continues to walk by faith. Now, neither is it the fact that you see a bunch of footsteps of Abraham, and finally, after all these footsteps going in the right direction, doing everything good he possibly could do, then God says, okay, you're righteous. No, 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 no. It was this. God declared Abraham righteous, and his footsteps of faith continued from there. That's the way you and I ought to live, in the footsteps of Father Abraham. See, life-transforming faith is faith that lives out that transformed life. When we base our pursuit of sanctification, that is, belonging wholly to Christ in every respect upon our justification, then that is true holy living. What does this kind of faith look like practically? I want to just give you three principles under the heading of the practice of life-transforming faith. First of all, faith shows itself in obedience. That's why we read that passage from James chapter 2, because it emphasizes the fact that a life that, a life that doesn't result in obedience or whatever faith it is, I put faith in quotation marks, whatever faith it is that doesn't result in a transformed kind of life must not have been life-transforming faith. Why? Because faith that is alive shows that it's alive by obedient behavior. Faith shows itself in obedience. And, I'll, I'll add to that, that, under the first principle, faith that does not show itself in obedience is not genuine faith. Second, obedience is motivated by faith. The kind of obedience that is holy obedience, obedience that God wants from His people, is an obedience that comes from a conviction that God has accepted me in Christ. And obedience 
that is not motivated by faith isn't true obedience. It may look like true obedience, but it actually might be anxiety-ridden attempt to gain God's favor because we're not resting in the righteousness of Christ or to prove that, you, that we are superior to other people and, and therefore feel validated in ourselves. But it's not out of faith. You see, true obedience springs from faith in God's justification of us. So faith shows itself in obedience. Obedience is motivated by faith. And third principle under the practice of faith is that faith persists, though imperfectly, in the right direction. Faith persists, though imperfectly, in the right direction. Did Abraham live a perfect life? No, he didn't. He made some big mistakes. And every mistake that Abraham made could be traced to a failure to cling to the promise of God. You think about it. When Abraham took a concubine to try to help God out and produce children, that failure was a failure of faith. He wasn't resting fully at that point in the promise of God. When Abraham was afraid, paranoid, that he'd be killed for the sake of his beautiful wife, Sarah, and so lied about her and allowed Sarah to be taken into the harem of two kings on two separate occasions, what was that? If not a failure of faith, he wasn't fully resting on the promise of God. But the reality is this, though imperfect, true faith persists to the very end. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 11, verse 13, that Abraham, like the other fathers of faith, they, they persisted in their faith till the very end. These all died in faith. This is life-transforming faith. This is the kind of faith that God wants us to have. And I think this has tremendous application. I'm going I'm to speak directly to the three kinds of people here, okay? And I don't know who you are exactly, but this, I'm speaking to maybe three kinds of hearts, three, three ways in which our hearts tend to be. One is if, if you have had a very shallow view of sin and holiness, you, you def, you've defined sin pretty much exclusively in certain do's and don'ts, and if you can manage to keep these certain rules, you're okay, and if you break them, you're not. Now, it is true that sin is the transgression of the law, but sin springs from a heart that wants to live life independently of God, and that can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. In fact, some of your most um, zealous works, even in the church, even in this church, might be motivated by a self-centered desire that people think well of you. And it could be that you've been like salving your conscience by, by the more you do, when in fact you, there are things that you need to repent of that you haven't even thought about repenting of. Why? Because you haven't even th thought of those things as being sins. But the moment you have, a, you have a deeper view of what sin really is and of what God really, God really wants of you, you'll be able to look at your life with, with greater clarity. John writes in the first chapter of his first epistle, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, 
then, then we will see what our, our sins for what they are. And that will lead us to confess our sins. And if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Yes, not just to forgive us, but also to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The closer you get to God, the more you see God's holiness, the more your own sins and flaws are going to show up, the more you, be con- you begin confessing and repenting. See, the, the thriving, life-transforming Christian life is not a life in which you finally reach a plateau in which you don't need to repent of anything anymore. It's a life of continual repentance. So if you've had a, a very shallow view of sin and a very narrow view of righteousness, you'll think, I don't have anything to repent of anymore. And you'll be surprised when people point things out in your life that say, hey, maybe this is not right. And you're like, well, how could that be not right? I'm doing all the right things. Oh, my friends, we must have, we must have a view of God's holiness and of our sinfulness that makes us eager to repent and quick to repent when things are pointed out in our lives. But it could be that you're not have this overly rigid view of of sin and holiness, but it could be that you've gotten very careless. You love hearing the idea that God accepts you in Jesus Christ, and therefore, what it doesn't really matter what you do. You're still going to be God, a child of God, and they're like, "Well, that's that's great news. Now I can do what I want." That's not what God's grace teaches you to do. In the book of Titus, Paul says that the grace of God teaches us to deny worldly lust and to live righteously and soberly and upright in this present world. The grace of God, if the effect of something on your your life is to say, well, then then I can do what I want, even if it displeases God and it doesn't matter, whatever that is, isn't God's grace. Because God's grace teaches you to be holy and motivates you to be holy. And maybe you've gotten careless about that. And maybe there's a lot of things in your life, like vast, untouched areas of your life, and you've left them untouched because you've tried to convince yourself, well, I'm saved, aren't I? I'm saved, aren't I? I'm saved, aren't I? You keep arguing that over and over again. But Jesus Christ came and died and rose again, not just to give you some sort of vague assurance and living a life of sin. He, he came to save your whole person. See, Jesus Christ is a redeeming and a sanctifying Savior. Maybe it's not that you have a shallow view of holiness and a narrow view of, or a shallow view of sin and a narrow view of holiness. Maybe it's not that you've gotten careless. Maybe you're here this morning and you just simply need to be encouraged in your life-transforming faith. You just need to be encouraged to do that. That may be the vast majority of you. Maybe you're, you're probably here and you're like, I want to live that kind of life. I, I'm, I'm trusting in Jesus Christ and I want to work from that justification, from that righteousness to, to, a, to a life that's completely belonging to Jesus in every way. You need to be stirred up. You need to be encouraged to do that. Uh, Jolyn was talking about people who are painting the nursery. If you've done some painting, uh, as I did a few years ago, Krista and I did, we moved into our house, you realize that a bucket of paint needs to be stirred up now and then, doesn't it? If you dip the paintbrush into the, it's been sitting there for a few days, you dip the paintbrush into the top and you just dip it right then, you start painting, that color's not going to look right. What you need to do is you need to get that stick and you need to put it right down in the bottom of that that paint bucket and just start stirring it up so that all the, the color gets consistent. You know, my friends, what, what you need to do is you need to take all the means of grace, that is, your 
your daily habits of prayer, your reading the Bible in the morning, your coming to church, not just being here, but opening your life and your heart to other people. And you need to take that just like the stick down to the bottom of the bucket and stir it up. Stir it up. T- take advantage of all the graces of God that He's put into you. I mean, you've got Bible apps on your phone. You've got Bible reading plans. Uh, you- you've got uh, lessons and-, and-, and Sunday classes and opportunity to listen to preaching or Bible reading uh, on on the, the radio, or on, on your phone. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that you can stir up that life-transforming faith. My friends, may we walk in the steps of Abraham, father of faith, not imitating everything there is to imitate about, about his life, but rather imitating his life-transforming faith. Would you bow your heads with me? Can we have a time briefly to meditate on what we've learned. Have you gotten careless about your pursuit of following Jesus? Maybe it's been your carelessness has you've given yourself a theological excuse. Or on the other hand, have you tried to convince yourself that because you're doing all these right things, then you are all right? And yet, you need to realize that your justification is not based upon your merits, but it's upon the merits of Jesus Christ. I don't know, what, I don't know exactly what that logic might be for you, but you do. Would you pray that back to God? Our Father, We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, who is our sin-conquering, death-defeating Savior. And I pray that you would cause each one of us who have trusted in Jesus to stir up our faith. And for any who have not trusted in Christ, that they would do that this morning. I pray that there would be someone in this room who they've come in and they've put themselves at a distance from you that they would realize that you are closing that gap and you're speaking to them. Oh, Spirit of God, convict that heart and draw them and build up your church so that we be those who are zealous for good works, not as a means to salvation, but from our salvation and acceptance in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.